Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. We're uh, very happy to have Gerald Lang here from Leeds tonight, who's going to talk to us about what follows from defensive non-liability. Thank you, Tim. Um, I was honoured to be invited. Um, delighted to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, the paper was uploaded only a few days ago. Obviously, I'm not assuming that anyone's read it. If anyone has read it, I should say that I'm omitting the section uh, where I discussed Victor Tadras's work uh, because it doesn't add that much to the positive picture. It's just, just relentlessly negative. Um, and it might indeed disappear from the, uh, the final draft since the paper is um, overlong. So... I'm going to be talking about <clears throat> self-defense. In cases of self-defense, something normatively eventful and perhaps puzzling happens. Um, the attacker seems to lose normative powers. He used to be protected by a right, uh, and most of us think that he loses this protection as a result of violence against the defender. And the defender appears to gain certain normative powers. Um, she is now permitted to do things which she wouldn't normally be able to do. So we can think of this as a normative baton, which is passed from one of them, the attacker, to the other, the defender. So I've called this the central normative transition of self-defense in other work. Um, and that is my, my big question. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Um, what I'm going to be doing in the paper is to question the prevalence of liability um, and to try to argue for the greater importance of the defender's non-liability. It's the defender's non-liability, I'm going to argue, rather than the attacker's liability, which really uh, makes things happen in the ethics of defense. So according to one popular style of answer, um, the attacker becomes liable to be attacked by the defender. I'm not going to deny that, although I'm going to give it a different kind of significance. The attacker attacks the defender. By doing that, the attacker becomes liable. In becoming liable, the attacker isn't wronged by the defender's defensive violence, assuming certain conditions are met, which I'm not going to have very much to say about, such as imminence, necessity, and proportionality. Um, now, liability justifications have a couple of things going for them. First of all, they avoid what I call the overgeneration problem. Um, one can think of different cases in which the defender can defend her life. So in one kind of case, we can call it the shield case. The defender could grab an innocent bystander um, so that the innocent bystander absorbed... Uh, the attacker's attack. That would be an exercise in self-preservation. The defender would be using the innocent bystander in order to save her life. 
But what liability justifications insist upon is that there's an asymmetry between the innocent bystander here and the attacker. In canonical cases of self-defense, the attacker will be liable, but not the innocent bystander. The innocent bystander just happens to be there, minding his own business. He's not liable to be attacked, but the attacker does become liable to be attacked. That's the difference between them. And the result of that is that the defender's attack is properly trained on only the attacker and not the innocent bystander, so that we don't have over-expansive permissions. And that looks like an advantage if you share garden variety deontological intuitions according to which innocent bystanders uh, are immune to defensive violence, which I share. Another advantage is that they avoid what I call the symmetry problem. Here's something that could happen in self-defense. The attacker attacks the defender. Because the defender is attacked, the defender acquires a permission to attack the attacker. But now the attacker's life is also under threat by the defender. So do we want to say now that the normative pendulum is swinging back to the attacker? Does the attacker acquire permission simply because his life is now under threat to counterattack the defender? We'd better say not. Um, very few people have defended that. It's sometimes attributed to Hobbes. I suspect things are a little bit more complicated in Hobbes because everyone in Hobbesian world is very dangerous and everyone is aggressive, but I'm not going to get into that here. But still, even though no one defends it, we still want a theory of defense that avoids an implication that an attacker could be permitted to use violence against the uh, defender simply because the attacker's life is now under threat from the defender. So liability justifications, as I call them, seem able to do justice to, uh, they seem able to avoid the symmetry problem. Right? The attacker is liable, but the defender isn't liable, so there's no symmetry. The attacker is properly attacked by the defender, but the defender isn't properly attacked by the attacker. Well, so far, liability is a kind of placeholder. We know, it, uh, we know it for what it does rather than having identified what it is. Um, it has the effect of focusing defensive violence only on the attacker rather than innocent bystanders as well. And it also restricts counter-defensive measures by the attacker. But how does it do that? How does liability do that? Well, there are different issues embedded here. Um, so one concerns the criterion of liability. Under what conditions um, is liability triggered? And the second concerns the explanation of why li liability is triggered in those particular conditions. And there are different criteria of defensive liability. I'm just going to mention two of them. Thompson um, thinks that the attacker is liable just when and because the um, attacker will otherwise violate the defender's rights. 
Uh, Jeff McMahon, to take someone else who's very prominent in the debate, thinks that the attacker becomes liable when the attacker is responsible for an objectively unjust threat to the defender. And there are different explanatory pictures as well. For Thompson, it's a matter of rights violation. Uh, I'll be going back to that. And for McMahon, it looks like a kind of distributive problem. There's a, an unavoidable harm which has to be distributed between the attacker and the defender. If the attacker is responsible for it, then justice requires that the attacker properly bears the costs of defensive violence. <clears throat> I'll be getting back into some of those issues uh, shortly. But what I'm going to do, and I guess I'm getting on to section two now, um, is to reverse the usual direction of theoretical travel here. Most theorizing about self-defense starts with what you might call the, the brightly lit canonical case in which the attacker is a nasty piece of work and is responsible for what he does and the defender is entirely innocent. We can call that case culpable attacker. So whatever your theory of defensive liability is, um, these seem to be the conditions under which it's going to fly. But there are less obvious cases or more penumbral cases in which the normative asymmetry between attacker and defender is reduced or perhaps even erased. And for understandable reasons, these are seen as much more problematic in the literature. I'm going to give pride of place to one of these cases in which the normative asymmetry between the defender and attacker seems to shrink, perhaps to zero. We call it falling man. So Nozick, um, Nozick first proposed it. Uh, there wasn't much theorizing, but, but the case has stuck in the literature. It's much discussed. So uh, according to my telling of it, um, Victoria is standing at the bottom of a well. She has no escape options. And she'll be crushed to death by an entirely innocent, unconscious falling man, Victor, unless she vaporizes him with her ray gun. And Victor, by contrast, will be saved if he falls on Victoria, who will cushion his fall. So falling man gives us the most um, extreme instance of what's referred to in the literature as uh, a non-responsible threat. So Victor does threaten Victoria, but he's not responsible for that. He's unconscious, after all. He's not acting. He's merely falling. So how does the literature respond to this case? Well, Thompson thinks that Victoria can kill Victor. In fact, she makes no interesting distinctions between um, all the many subspecies of attackers, just as long as the defender is innocent. So there are different types of attacker. I've given you the culpable attacker already. There are innocent attackers. These are agents whose agency is compromised. So think of cases of psychosis, for example, or um, think of a child soldier, someone whose uh, capacity for responsibility is underdeveloped. 
and there are non-responsible threats such as Victor. So Thompson thinks all of these agents can be killed. And she says the following. I mean, she's using the cases she uses to um, illustrate the points she wants to make, which involves drivers, but you can imagine how that goes. So she says, the villainous driver in villainous aggressor has no right to kill you. And surely it is also true of the fault-free driver in innocent aggressor that he has no right to kill you. In Hofeltian terms, neither of the two drivers has a privilege of killing you. For them to lack the privilege of killing you, however, is for you to have rights, Hofeltian claims, that they not do so. Rights they will infringe if they succeed in killing you. So what Thompson seems to be saying is this. Um, let's agree that these agents, whatever state they're in, whether they're unconscious and falling or whether they're nasty and are culpable, it's true of all of them that they don't have the right to kill the defender. But if those agents lack the right to kill the defender, then the defender must have the right not to be killed by them. That's Thompson's crucial thought. So they don't have the right to kill the defender, therefore the defender has the right not to be killed by them. So if they do kill the defender, they will have violated her right. And that is what activates the defender's permission to take defensive action against them. So everything um, goes through this Hofeldian apparatus. It's all to do with rights violation for Thompson. And yes, some of these agents will be faultlessly violating or they threaten to faultlessly violate the defender's rights. But nonetheless, don't worry about the adverb. They're faultlessly violating the defender's rights. And that's, that's what gets the show going for Thompson. So I agree with her um, that the defender does have the right, is permitted to kill all of these species of attackers. But I'm going to quarrel with her about the normative path we take to that conclusion. Anyway, other writers have disagreed with Thompson over that. So, um, I mean, lots of, lots of people, Jeff McMahon, Mike Otsuka, David Rodin, and many others as well. Um, ah. I've skipped something. Can I just go back? Sorry, I'll just rewind that. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll get to what these other people say in a minute. Um, look, another advantage going for Thompson, that she needs a story about rights violation. Otherwise, she's going to encounter the overgeneration problem. Right? So let's take another example of an innocent um, bystander. This is controversial, this Example. So it might be that other types of innocent bystanders, such as innocent shields, would make a better illustration. But Thompson herself is um, committed to the view that innocent obstructors, such as the one in Bridge, which I'm about to read out, uh, is also immune to defensive violence. So in this 
in this case, Jules is fleeing from Jim's culpable attack on him. His only hope of escape is to cross a rickety rope bridge, which will bear the weight of only one person. Uh, the bridge is occupied by Catherine. If Jules shakes it, Catherine will fall to her death, and Jules can make good on his escape. If Jules refrains from that, he will be killed by Jim. So, as I said, some people think there's something problematic about Catherine here because she is, after all, uh, obstructing uh, Jules' attempts to escape. But Thompson thinks Catherine is immune here. So even though, alas, her presence uh, entails that Jules will die because he won't be able to get away from Jim's threat, um, even though Catherine is playing that causal role, she's not liable to be killed. And that's because she's not threatening um, Jules' rights. So Thompson needs that reference to rights violation in order to avoid the overgeneration problem. <coughs> she doesn't have that, then it's open season on innocent bystanders. And that's the wrong result for her. Now, let's get back to uh, Falling Man. So lots of people have thought um, that deeper reflection on this case will give us a conclusion that Victor is immune. Victor is not liable to uh, defensive violence by Victoria. And in order to encourage us to adopt that conclusion, they've often compared Falling Man to another case, which I'm calling um, Rolling Stone. And this is, the literature's full of this as well. So you see it in Otsuka, McMahon, Rodin, lots of other people. So in my telling of the Rolling Stone story, it's not a complicated story, a stone is rolling towards Sly, who can avoid being crushed by it only by destroying it with his bazooka. Um, let me say immediately, it's not controversial that Sly can destroy the stone. That's not the point of the case. The point of the case is to convince us that um, there is no more promising basis for saying that Victor is liable than for saying that the stone is liable. To all intents and purposes, Victor is just like the stone. So if Thompson wants to stick to her guns and say that um, Victoria has the right to kill Victor because otherwise Victor will violate her right, um, these people will say, in a, you know, just, it's just satirical fodder, well, that's like saying that the stone can violate Sly's rights. How silly. So, Rolling Stone, this case, bolsters the view, or it's intended to bolster the view, that Victor, in Falling Man, is an unintelligible subject of duties, and that, as McMahon puts it, the threat he poses is neither permissible nor impermissible. What I want to do is to uh, flip this case on its head. I'm going to use this case 
to show that it's much less obvious what's going on and to try, well, not only do I want to um, show that it is permissible for Victoria to kill Victor in um, Falling Man, I want to use these reflections in order to alter the distribution of power in the central normative transition between liability and non-liability. So I think we can take this bit of satire, the Rolling Stone, by reflecting on it further, I think we can invert the picture that many of these theorists want us to accept. But we have to go slowly. Right. So, for Thompson, as we've seen, the threat lacks the right to kill the defender. And because the threat lacks the right to kill the defender, the threat thus threatens the defender's right. Okay? Lacks the right to threaten, therefore threatens the defender's right. Maybe, let's take a deeper, let's take a closer look at that. Um, maybe we don't have to say that the threat violates or risks violating the defender's right. Maybe we can just get by on the first thing Thompson says, which is that the threat lacks the right to kill the defender. Maybe we can just get by on that. Because that looks true. It does seem true that the stone lacks the right to kill Sly. That's Roman numeral one. Um, why do we say that the stone lacks the right to kill Sly? Well, it's because stones lack rights to do anything. If the stone lacks the right to do anything, then it must lack the right to kill Sly. If it could not be the case that the stone has a right to kill Sly, it's just a stone, it is not the case that the stone has a right to kill Sly, and therefore a stone lacks the right to kill Sly. And that takes us to Roman numeral one. So that looks okay. Um, now, the question is, does this claim, one, Roman numeral one, does it support Roman numeral two? Because that looks embarrassing. That's what we want to avoid. If the stone lacks the right to kill Sly, does it then follow that the stone, if the stone kills Sly, then Sly's rights are violated? No. One doesn't support two, and it doesn't support two because of three. And one and three are consistent. According to three, stones cannot violate or infringe rights. Stones are just not in the rights violation business. If that's the case, then an entailment of that claim is that the stone lacks the right to kill Sly. This is beginning to look nice. Um, because maybe it'll turn out to be the case that Victoria um, can kill Victor simply because Victor lacks the right to kill her. Maybe that's all we need to say. 
But things are not going to be that straightforward, not immediately. Um, it depends what happens if we accept one, which we should accept. So the stone lacks the right to kill Sly. It is not the case that Sly is liable to be killed by the stone. How are we going to handle that negation? Well, maybe one way of trying to handle it is to say, four, Sly is not liable to be killed by the stone. But this is beginning to look bad, because four might then lead to five. Sly is wronged by being killed by the stone. So it's not the case that Sly is liable to be killed by the stone. That's definitely right. But if we say that, are we then investing it to an unwise degree in the connection between liability and wronging? That would be bad, because stones aren't in the rights violation business, and neither do stones wrong anyone. So that doesn't work, or it doesn't work immediately. We've got to do something else in order to make progress. So I think we need to take a step back um, and look at some aspects of the justificatory wiring in these circuits. They're quite delicate. So this is section three now, stones and privileges. So again, for Thompson, the threat lacks the right to kill the defender. And thus, oh no, hold it. No, I'm on section four now, sorry. So. Let's, um, let's compare the culpable attacker with falling man. So in culpable attacker, things are more straightforward. Um, the attacker acts impermissibly and threatens the defender's rights. So the impermissibility of what the attacker does is then mirrored in some sense, inversely, in the permissibility of what the defender does in defense of herself. But as McMahon sees mat matters, falling man breaks that kind of justificatory circuitry. Because if Victor's movements are not impermissible, the justificatory chain is broken. And we can't appeal to them to support the claim that Victoria's defense is permissible. So that's how, that's how McMahon argues. He's saying that. His question is this, is what Victor does impermissible? His answer is no. It's not impermissible because he's not acting. He's not an agent. His agency has been neutralized or paralyzed. So he's not capable of acting wrongly. Therefore, he's not acting wrongly. Therefore, what he does is not impermissible. So we don't get permissibility going to Victoria as a result of the impermissibility of what Victor does. And that fact for McMahon ends the argument. It denies Victoria defensive permissions against Victor. But there are further implications which McMahon doesn't fully trace out. And I think these leave us in a more unsettled and ambiguous position. McMahon wants to say 
that what Victor does is neither impermissible nor permissible. We've already looked at one um, type of implication, at least as he sees it. It's not impermissible, so we don't get permissibility turning up for Victoria. But what about the other one? It's not impermissible, it's also not permissible. If it's not permissible, then we couldn't then expect to find the mirror image in Victoria's position. We wouldn't get impermissibility for Victoria, which then somehow related to permissibility of what Victor did. But McMahon takes an asymmetrical attitude to these things. So Victor's attack, if you can call it attack, if that's too agential, think of some more neutral word, um, what Victor does, or what or Victor's movements, um, they're not impermissible. Therefore, to cut a long story short, Victoria's defence is not permissible. But what about the other way of looking at it? What Victor does isn't permissible either. So why? So that's not going to support the view that what Victoria does, if she defends herself, is impermissible. So we just don't get these broken, frayed connections in the canonical cases such as culpable attacker. In those cases, uh, the property of being not permissible and the property of being impermissible, they go together. We have coextensiveness. If the attacker does not act permissibly, he also acts impermissibly. They march in step. They stand or fall together. But in these cases such as falling man, um, it's broken. It's not the case that the property of not acting permissibly is coextensive with the property of acting impermissibly. So I want to urge that there's a normative gap here. Um, and I think that invites a new normative settlement about the permissions and non-permissions on offer to the various parties. And as I see it, the existence or the significance of this gap is not fully appreciated by either McMahon, uh, whose substantive commitments I strongly disagree with, or Thompson, whose substantive commitments I strongly agree with. Uh, there's more theorizing to do than Thompson acknowledges. So, to make some progress, let's get back to Rolling Stone. So the Stone's movements, uh, I mean, more obviously than I think Victor in Falling Man, fail to be permissible and they fail to be impermissible. It's not a morally significant entity. Uh, what it does um, cannot be significantly morally characterised. So there's no passing of the normative baton from the Stone to Sly. The permissibility of Sly's defence cannot be traced to the impermissibility of the Stone's movements. But notice that this claim mirrors the structure of Falling Man on McMahon's interpretation of it. The permissibility of Victoria's defence cannot be traced to the impermissibility of Victor's movements. Now, in Falling Man, McMahon thinks that this particular breakage in the normative circuits demonstrates that Victoria's defence is impermissible. But that wouldn't be the correct line to take 
in Rolling Stone, because Sly is, obviously enough, permitted to destroy the stone. So what seems to certify Sly's defence in Rolling Stone uh, rests simply on the fact that the threat posed to him is not permissible. I'm going to get pushed back here, so I'm going to um, try to preempt the protest. The protest might be, well, don't think that you're going to recover any lessons for falling man from Rolling Stone. I mean, after all, Victor is a morally significant being. The stone is not a morally significant being. And second, the fact the stone has no moral status at all will place Rolling Stone outside the category of defensive cases. I, I, I agree that these points of disanalogy exist, so I'm not saying otherwise. But there's still something to learn from Rolling Stone. It doesn't matter how we classify it. Um, it furnishes us with the lesson that the impermissibility of a threat is not a necessary condition for the permissibility of defensive action. Does that sound controversial? Well, it's not controversial in Rolling Stone. It's just a stone. <laughs> um, what the stone does is not impermissible, but of course... Sly can destroy the stone. It's an easy case. But I think that lesson, however obvious and boring it is in Rolling Stone, can be put to more interesting uses. For we can still ask how the fact that Victor is a morally significant being manages to defeat the suggestion that Victoria lacks permission to defend herself against him, even though the threat he poses to her is not permissible. I can imagine some further moves uh, here. So let me, again, try to preempt them. So one might think... You might say, well, look, Victor's agency is incapacitated, so his movements are not impermissible. You could say that. But that by itself isn't going to hold the line because look at Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Um, the stone in Rolling Stone isn't doing something that's impermissible, but it's fine to destroy the stone. You might think, well, that's not what I was getting at. What I'm trying to get at is the fact that the stone has no moral standing. Uh, but Victor does have moral standing. That's what I'm trying to get at. That's true. Victor does have moral standing. Um, but that, by itself, isn't going to decide whether Victoria has, can permissibly defend herself against him. And that's because she also has moral standing. And that yields a tie between Victor and Victoria. Now, we need something to break that tie. Whatever happens, one of them is going to be killed. So that, by itself, isn't going to settle anything. Here's another suggestion which comes from uh, McMahon. So according to McMahon, Victoria should allow herself to be killed rather than killing Victor. And that's on the grounds 
that there's a, um, a morally significant distinction between killing and letting die. Well, that's a big issue, of course. But, I mean, even if we're sympathetic to McMahon's views there, which, which I am, that there is a morally significant difference between killing and letting die, uh, I think the argument misfires because it might be true that Victoria would be allowing herself um, to be killed by Victor, but it would still be a choice between killings. What, would she, what she would be allowing herself... Well, she would be allowing herself to be killed by Victor. So it's a killing versus a killing. Her inaction doesn't put um, this case into one of them an allowing and one of them a killing. It would be a killing either way. Either Victor kills Victoria or Victoria kills Victor. Choice of killings. Jeff might say, yeah, but look, um, but the killing... Victor's killing of Victoria will lack its usual moral toxicity because he is, after all, a non-responsible threat. He's just falling. Um, whereas her killing of him will be one for which she is morally responsible. So there's an asymmetry there if you buy the killing-letting-die distinction. But that asymmetry can be pressed into service only if it turns out that Victoria's defensive killing of Victor is impermissible. And that's precisely what McMahon's argument is trying to establish. He'd be jumping the gun if he were to rely on that point in order to establish his favoured conclusion. So that's not going to work either. So we seem to be stuck Unless. So, before going on, let me just recapitulate some relevant points. In cases of defence, the movements of the threatening entity against the defender can fall into one of three categories. First, the threat's movements might be permissible. And second, the threat's movements might be impermissible. Third, the threat's movements might be neither permissible nor impermissible. Now, if the threat's movements are permissible, then I think we should agree that the permissibility of defence is blocked. If the threat's movements are impermissible, then the permissibility of defence is enabled. So in those cases, we get nice, brightly coloured um, mirror images. If what the threat does is permissible, we get impermissibility with respect to the defender and vice versa. That's OK. That's pretty straightforward. It's the third case that's tricky. In the third case, the threat's movements will be neither permissible nor impermissible. In those cases, there are no clear lines of normative transmission from the threat situation to the defender situation. And what I'm trying to get are concrete settlements in these cases um, on pain of gaps in our theory of defence.
So how are we going to make progress? How are we going to make sense of this third category? Threats which are neither permissible nor impermissible. If it's a stone, it's neither permissible nor impermissible, and obviously the defender can defend himself against the stone. It's less clear for Victor in Falling Man. We seem to be stuck. We seem to be stuck by focusing on the attacker, by trying to characterize the attacker. So I think what we need to do is to switch focus so that we lose the attacker focus and move to a defender focus. So the defender has interests which her rights serve to protect. And the central function of those rights is to protect her against the violation of those rights, is to protect her interests against their frustration, to give her normative remedies for preventing their frustration. That's not meant to be controversial. That's just a really generic characterization of what it is to have a right. So that by itself isn't going to make waves. Um, but we can start to do something by constructing a schema, which I call broad non-liability. Now, this is not meant so far to be controversial. I'm just using pretty obvious data uh, in order to construct this broad non-liability um, schema, just using the stone and using culpable attackers. So let me go through it. So uh, D designates the defender and T designates the threat. So if D is broadly non-liable to be attacked by T, then it is either the case that D is not wronged by T but is permitted to defend herself by taking the necessary steps to neutralize the threat posed by T, or it is the case that D is wronged by T and is permitted to defend herself by taking the necessary steps to neutralize the threat posed by T. Is that dodgy? No, that's not dodgy. That's fine. Um, because there are cases falling under both one and two, right? So uh, stones will fall under one. Stones don't wrong Sly, but Sly is, of course, permitted to destroy them. So that's fine. And there are certain cases that fall under two as well. Culpable attackers. Again, not controversial. So I've just put the two together and called it broad non-liability. So there's nothing dodgy going on so far. But it's just a schema which is composed as a result of uniting these different bits of data. It doesn't contain an argument for why every threat should be assigned to either one or two. So the question is, what do we do about Victor? Well, so according to people like uh, Otsuka and McMahon and Rodin, um, Victor has a hybrid character. So he retains his high moral standing of ordinary, non-liable human persons, and that renders it impermissible for Victoria to kill him. 
But the reasons he has this moral immunity derives from the fact that his movements can be significantly compared to the stone in Rolling Stone. So his agential incapacity makes it implausible to suggest that non-responsible threats can wrong the defender. And that might seem to be the sticking point. If Victor hasn't wronged Victoria, he won't have done it intentionally, but if, perhaps faultlessly, he hasn't wronged Victoria, how can it be permissible for Victoria to kill him? And my suggestion is this. We don't have to worry about that issue. We needn't agonise over whether Victor wrongs Victoria. All we need to do is to establish that Victor's attack is not permissible. <coughs> Easy enough. Victoria's just there, minding a business. She's definitely not liable. So it's not the case that what he does is permissible. So it might be, if we give Victoria defensive permissions against Victor, that the case falls under one or falls under two. It might be more like the stone, or it might be more like the culpable attacker. What I'm saying, we should relax. I don't know which of the two it falls under. It might be indeterminate which one it falls under. But we don't have to worry about that. It's going to belong to one of them. So I think for that reason, we should admit that Victoria uh, does have defensive permissions against Victor. So what I've done, and this might seem surprising, but it's my argument, I've tried to extract a lot of significance um, from the Rolling Stone case, a case that would have struck most people as just a annoying or momentarily diverting bit of satire. I've taken it pretty seriously. I think by saying that Victoria does have permission against Victor, we avoid having to explain why the hybrid character category of not permissible but not impermissible should take one form when applied to non-responsible threats such as Victor and another form when applied to an entity such as a stone. Now, I can hear, I, I can, I can, I, I'm tugged in the direction of saying, but there must be a difference because Victor is an agent and a stone counts for absolutely nothing. That's true, but we've already looked at the move that says that makes a difference. It doesn't make the difference because Victoria is an agent as well. So that cancels out. And when that cancels out, we're just left with the claim that a threat's not being permissible is what triggers defensive permissions. And that's what I think. But I've got to go on to complete... Uh, I'll be able to do some minutes. Um, I've got to go on to complete the picture. Now, someone might say this. Um, you're not really avoiding commitment um, to the claim that Victor is faultlessly, sure, wronging Victoria. 
In fact, you're doing nothing different from what Thompson does. You're just trying to dress it up in slightly different language, but nonetheless, your views are just like Thompson's. Why is that? Well, we can just recite the following kind of platitudes. If Victoria has defensive permissions, then they are appropriately targeted towards Victor. So Victor is an appropriate object of defensive force. That can't be denied. But if that can't be denied, then it may seem difficult to deny that Victor is, after all, defensively liable. But if Victor is defensively liable, then we might as well accept that he has, in fact, wronged Victoria. Perhaps he wasn't to blame for this wronging, but nonetheless, he's wronged her. What am I going to do about that? I'm not really in a position to uh, deny the appropriate object claim or the liability claim. So I do think the picture needs to be fooled out. Um, Victoria does have defensive permissions against Victor, and in a certain sense, yes, that does make Victor liable, defensively liable. But I want to say that the sense in which Victor is defensively liable is one which is captured by the following schema, which is meant to accompany broad non-liability. So here we just switch places. Um, same cases we can use to illustrate. So according to broad liability, if T is broadly liable to be attacked by D, then it is either the case that, three, T poses a threat to D where D is broadly non-liable in sense one of broad non-liability. Sorry, you're going to be shuttling now between different bits of the handout. But. Or it is the case that four, T poses a threat to D where D is broadly non-liable in sense two of broad non-liability. So stones fall under three and culpable attackers fall under four. So according to my account, which I want to call the non-liability first account, as I see it, broad non-liability is the primitive. It's a normative primitive. And broad liability is a correlate of it. So we take our orders from broad uh, non-liability, and then we do get claims about liability. And we can't do without them. They play an indispensable... I mean, the liability role is ineluctable. It's going to be there. Um, but nonetheless, it's the correlate of something that's more fundamental. Broad non-liability is more fundamental than broad liability. So when we apply broad liability, we're going to find that Victor is broadly liable under either three or four. So just for broad non-liability, it wasn't clear which category Victor went into, and that was actually seen as a kind of advantage. Don't worry about that. That's going to turn up in broad liability as well. So, you know, he's going to be under one of them. Um, but we needn't commit to which one of them it is. Victor is liable, but his instantiation of broad liability is simply the correlate of the relevant sense of broad non-liability possessed by Victoria. Okay, so a couple of challenges to that. Um, here's one challenge. 
It looks as though the stone, which falls under subcategory 3, is broadly, um, broadly liable. The stone is broadly liable to be destroyed by Sly. And that might seem ridiculous. How could a stone be liable? Um, well, my reply is, well, it is an implication of the picture that, in the sense I've defined it, the stone is broadly liable to be destroyed by Sly. But that's not a ridiculous implication. The fact that the stone is broadly liable to be destroyed by Sly simply reflects the prior fact that Sly is permitted to destroy it. Now, we know that Sly is permitted to destroy it. It's not an interesting case. It's not a contentious case. So because Sly is permitted to destroy this, the stone, it turns out that the stone can now be defined as being broadly liable to be destroyed by him. Now, what would be ridiculous, of course, is the claim that the stone wrongs Sly. But no one's saying that, and I'm not saying that, of course. Um, so it's fine. We can explain away the ridiculousness. It's not ridiculous. Here, I think, is a, a tougher challenge to broad liability. This is challenge two. So according to this challenge, um, there's a kind of dilemma that we're going to have to wrestle with. Um, so one horn of it is this. I've tried to deflate the idea that if a defender has defensive privilege against the attacker, then the attacker must have wronged the defender. So I've tried to distance myself from that by saying it's not determinately the case that Victor has wronged Victoria. He's broadly liable to be killed in the sense I've defined it. But I'm not insisting that he has thereby wronged Victoria. But if that's the case, and it might seem that there's no real moral stigma that can be attached to him which demonstrates that he, and not an innocent bystander, is appropriately selected to bear the costs of Victoria's defence. So if what really matters at the end of the day is Victoria's broad non-liability and Victor isn't guilty of wrongdoing, or at least I'm not insisting that he is, then that must reduce the distinction or the significance of the distinction between self-defence and self-preservation. There's not much going on, morally speaking, uh, in Victor's case. But if that's the case, then why would it matter that Victor gets to be chosen as the um, appropriate object of Victoria's defensive violence? Why not an innocent bystander? And that's going to lead us to the overgeneration problem. And not everyone is terribly worried about the overgeneration problem. Some people um, think it's not a big deal. Someone like John Kwong thinks it's not a big deal. Um, but some of us do think that's quite a big deal. Thompson does, and I do as well. Um, so that's a problem. Well, the second horn of the dilemma is this. If the overgeneration problem that's resisted simply by reiterating the claim that Victor, but not the bystander, is broadly liable 
to defensive force, then it might seem that I've underplayed um, the significance of the fact that Victor threatens Victoria and lacks the right to do so. If I'm holding on to the claim that it's Victor and not an innocent bystander who is appropriately selected to bear those defensive costs, then it might look as though I am investing the claim that Victor lacks the right to threaten Victoria um, with a bit more moral oomph than I was pretending to. It looks as though the official view that Victor's wronging of Victoria is not functioning as a key consideration might be under threat. Uh, how am I going to reply to that dilemma? I, I, I do, I mean, I, I do find that dilemma quite difficult, but this is how I want to reply to it. First of all, the reply to the first one is this. Look, the distinction between being broadly liable and not being broadly liable is morally significant. That's what I'm saying. That's how we handle that. But I also want to deny that wrongdoing isn't required for broad liability to be significant. We might think it's morally significant that Victor is selected to bear the cost of defence in Victoria's case. But if that is significant, then it's Victoria's broad non-liability which makes it significant. We don't have to impute wrongdoing to Victor. The story is all told by non-liability, not liability. Well, that's all I have to say about the, um, these penumbral cases, Falling Man and Rolling Stone. But it might be asked, well, but what work is this kind of approach going to do in the more central, canonical cases, such as Culpable Attacker, when we've got intuitively a real distinction between um, the attacker who is culpable and the uh, defender who is innocent. Well, why should it do any interesting work in those cases? I think even in these cases, the real work is done by the defender's non-liability. So again, I'm going to just go over what Thompson and McMahon say, so though they have different substantive commitments, I think theoretically they're, they're both on thin ice here. Um, here's what Thompson says. What makes it permissible for you to kill everyone, attackers and non-responsible threats, is the fact that they will otherwise violate your rights that they not kill you, and therefore lack rights that you not kill them. I, I think I've italicised the therefore. Um, why have I done that? Because it doesn't seem immediately to follow. Yes, it's true that definitely a culpable attacker shouldn't be attacking the defender. But why does it follow that the defender thereby acquires the right to attack the attacker? Why is it the case that the attacker therefore lacks right that you not kill them? She's helping herself to that. I mean, intuitively, many of us will go along with that, but it doesn't seem to be a demonstration that the attacker has or does lack a right that the victim or defender not kill them. Let's see if McMahon can do 
any better. It's a bit more detailed. Um, this is his uh, recital. If A will otherwise violate B's right, he loses his own right not to be attacked. Thus, if B attacks him in self-defense, B does not violate any right of A's. Therefore, B retains his right not to be attacked. Therefore, A is not permitted to attack B in self-defense. On this theory, if one party to a conflict is justified, the opposing party cannot be. The same is true on the other major theories of self-defense. So Jeff has helped himself to a bunch of therefores and thuses there. Um, but again, to me, it, there's a risk of non sequitur. It's not, it's not, there's no clear explanation, even if it's the case that A has no business in attacking B, that therefore um, A lacks the right a may, sorry, a may lack the right to attack B, but it doesn't follow immediately um, by just looking at these claims that A loses his right not to be attacked by B. Of course, I agree with these writers um, that there is liability, but just trying to explain what liability is doesn't seem to be doing what it should be doing. It seems to be just... Um, table thumping. What could be making a difference, what is making a difference, I think, is what's going on in the defender. The defender has rights which are under threat by the attacker. Because the defender has rights, um, the defender is normatively empowered to take steps to protect herself against the violation of those rights. So I think there must be provision for the liability role. In telling the self-defense story, we're going to, um, we are going to want to identify who is the appropriate person or entity to bear the cost of defense. That's the liability role. Uh, we can't dispense with that. But nonetheless, it looks as though liability itself is not a potent or active part of the normative explanation. So I'm going to conclude by putting to you that liability looks like a normative placeholder. I think we must invoke the defender's non-liability to explain the attacker's liability. Non-liability comes first. Thank you. <laughs>